I were to say to you the name Jerry Falwell, I wonder what would come to mind for some of you. If I were to say the name Larry Flint, some of you might know that name. Falwell, the founder of Moral Majority. Flint, the publisher of Hustler, men's magazine. Years ago, Jonathan Falwell traveled with his father to Florida, where the senior Falwell was going to debate Larry Flint. Jonathan recalls this story. says, Mr. Flint asked my dad if we could give him a ride back to Lynchburg following the debate in our private jet. Dad said, yes. As we flew to Virginia, I sat across from my dad and Mr. Flint, and they had a long conversation about sports and food and politics and other ordinary topics of life. I was amazed and I was a bit bewildered because they kept talking like old friends. After we dropped off Mr. Flint in Lynchburg, I asked my dad, I said, how come you could sit on that airplane and carry on a conversation with Larry Flint as if you guys were lifelong buddies? Dad, he's, he's the exact opposite of everything you believe in. He does all of the things that you preach against, and yet you were treating him like he was an old friend. Why? My father's response changed my entire outlook on ministry. Jonathan, he said, there may come a day when Larry Flint is hurting and lonely, and he'll be looking for help, maybe even for some guidance. And he's going to pick up the phone, and he's going to call someone who can help him. I want to earn the right to get that phone call. Now, I'm not sure you could find two people who are further apart on the morality spectrum in terms of their perspective on right and wrong, and yet Jerry Falwell and his actions on that day are the perfect example of being the friend of a sinner. I love that. The title given to Jesus by the religious establishment, friend of sinners, those who were the keepers of the truth, the religious establishment, those who spent their lives and energy concerned about the things of God. That was the religious establishment. God's character, His laws and His commands and making sure that that God's people lived accordingly. That was the concern of the religious establishment. And so when they gave Jesus the title, a friend of sinners, it was one of disdain because Jesus simply didn't follow the rules. He simply lived life the wrong way and he hung out with the wrong people. But we've got to remember that Jesus came to reveal the heart and character of his Father. And he did that through the life that he lived, showing love for God and love of God for sinful people and ultimately to offer his life as an atoning sacrifice for those folks. And so my proposal has been to you in this brief series together that as followers of Jesus, if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, and we do talk a lot about that here at Applewood, then one of the evidences of that truth in our lives is that we will be friends of sinners. We will be friends as Jesus was. 
we will spend time and embrace those that sometimes don't fit into the paradigms or the categories of the religious establishment. And I am fearful that far too often in the life and history of the church throughout many generations, the church is often understood as an institution that is angry and mean-spirited and harsh toward a person or perhaps even a group of people deemed as the enemy, those who, who don't fit in the categories of right living or right thinking. And I just want to remind you this morning that it's so important to remember the words of Paul to the Ephesians. Our battle in this life is never against flesh and blood. And yet, way too often, I fear that we set folks up as the enemy. And we perceive that human being standing there, or that people group, as the enemy. Paul says, flesh and blood is never the enemy. Our battle is always against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do those forces of evil use people? Absolutely. All the time. Paul knew that. But he refused to identify human beings as the enemy. Broken people in the hands of dark spiritual forces were never and will never be the enemy. You know, and can I just give you a little side, go on record here for a moment, won't even charge you for this one. In this election year, when the mudslinging and the character assassination is rampant already, my prayer is that we as God's people will post that biblical truth somewhere where we can see it often as a reminder that this candidate or that candidate is not the enemy, where we will be reminded to be careful of what comes from our mouths regarding those who are in office or those who are aspiring to office. You know, I remember an interview that I read years ago about a church that was involved in intense neighborhood ministry, lived in a tough neighborhood, a lot going on in that neighborhood that was just evidence of brokenness in people's lives. And they were, they were excited about how this church was seeing life change, and they were interviewing one particular individual whose, whose life in just about every way on the scale imaginable, was contrary to what this church stood for in terms of its teaching and its beliefs. And I'll never forget, the interviewer asked this man, who was a regular attender of worship in that church on a Sunday, he said, how can you be here knowing that, that these people believe and stand for something that is so entirely contrary to, to what you believe and how you live your life? And his response was that it was the love of the people in that church 
that kept him there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I'll never forget. He said, I know that that pastor standing there on Sunday mornings believes very differently than I do about how I should live my life. But I never doubt for a moment that he loves me. I never doubt it. Friends of sinners, being like Jesus, that is, that is so noteworthy, and it is so refreshing, and it is so essential, my friends, in this, this age in which we live. So let me ask you, when you think of a friend, what comes to mind? Think of the friends that you have. Think of the people who consider you a friend. Above all else, when I think of a friend, I think of someone who likes me. They know me, and they still like me. Yeah, <laughs> strange as it could be. They, they know me, and they put up with me. And I, them. That's what, that's what friends do. And that's, that's what we're going for. We want the, the sinners in our lives to know that we like them. And tell me again, anybody remember what's our, what's our very simple definition of sinner for this series? Someone? <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> Those who are not followers of Jesus, as far as we know. They've never made any kind of a commitment to follow Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we are that much different or that they are that much different than us other than the, the issue of redemption, which of course is, is a huge one. Our goal as followers of Jesus is to be friends to all kinds of people, no matter who they are, no matter how they live, and to live toward others in such a way that they, they actually believe that we like them. That is so cool. I don't know what circles you've traveled in, but there are so many folks that I've known over the years who are pretty confident that Christians don't like them, that the church does not care about them. So, one last quick review of where we've been, and then we're going to wrap this up this morning. We've identified, you recall, two barriers. Two barriers, there are many, but I think there are two primary barriers that quickly derail our efforts to be a friend of sinners. And the first barrier, we called that having pride in our personal righteousness. This is a theologically incorrect, holier-than-thou attitude that simply has to be replaced by a theologically correct attitude, but for the grace of God, go I. We must remember that there is, there is nothing in us that earns God's favor. Not our family of origin, not our political affiliation, not our talents, not our good looks, not our good deeds, not even our potential for doing good deeds. None of those things earns favor with God. That's why we call it grace. There is nothing that we do that earns it. There's nothing that we could be that earns it. There's nothing that, that we could ever dream about doing that earns it. It's undeserved merit and blessing from God. We are not better than anyone. We are simply redeemed by God's favor. Period. Redeemed by God's favor. So the first barrier, 
is pride in our personal righteousness. How can we come to people who are different than we are, come to people who who are not redeemed and somehow exhibit or exude a pride in our righteousness, grossly inconsistent in our lives? We come to people with a sense of humility. We come to people with a sense of awe that, that I am loved by God. And we allow that to just just wash over their lives in winsome, genuine kinds of ways. There is a second barrier. We talked about judging others for their sins. There is no doubt about it. As we've said, there are some sins that are far greater in terms of their social impact upon people. The extent of that impact in our lives and our society. We were reminded of that last Sunday as we considered the actions of, of James Holmes in that Aurora Theater. Horrible. Horrible. But James Holmes is no worse a person than me. But for the grace of God, go I. I talked to one friend this last week who said, oh, I got to tell you, in my mind, in times of anger, I have gone where he went. I simply didn't pick up a gun and actually do it. And so we need to be cautious that we don't judge others for their sins. Jesus clearly forbid that, and we saw that his teaching in Matthew 6 was, was do not judge others, or you will be judged. In the way that you judge others, you will be judged. Using the word to convict or to sentence, we're not to categorize people according to their sins, with some of them being so bad that they are They are hopeless and unworthy of God's redemption. Oh, remember, we are all unworthy. And we must remember that sins come from a sinful heart. The actions ultimately aren't the problem. It's the source of those actions. It's a heart that does not recognize God, nor does it live according to His standards. And that is because it cannot It is bound to the sinful nature until God redeems it. We learned that from Romans chapter 8 together. It's so important that we remember that sinful people are broken people because that is what sin does. It breaks. It destroys. The worse the action of the individual, we need to understand that the greater the evidence of brokenness which leads us to a third barrier. We touched on this last Sunday when we read about the story of the man in the healing pool at Jerusalem. You recall, Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well. The man obviously had no idea who was speaking to him. Because he didn't really answer that question with any kind of exuberance. Yes! You want to get well. But he framed his answer within the context of 38 years of being an invalid. 38 years of potentially laying around that pool with a lot of other folks who were in the same situation. That was his life's framework. And the only healing that he could conceive of was when the water was stirred, as some manuscripts tell us, on occasion by an angel. First person in got healed. Well, he could never get there. How did Jesus respond? Well, 
What he didn't do was become offended. What he didn't do was suggest that this guy was a moron for not knowing who he was. He was not surprised. He didn't belittle the man for faulty thinking. (laughs) What? You don't know who I am? Come on, pal. He simply loved him. And he healed him. Third barrier that we need to be aware of that that arises from our hearts, and, and, and all of these barriers come from our hearts, my friends, they do. The third heart barrier is having unreasonable expectations of those who are not redeemed. Put another way, we could say it this way, expecting godly thinking and behavior from those who do not have the ability to think and act that way. Remember what we learned in Romans 8. It is the Spirit of God who renews our minds. And when our minds are renewed for the first time, we are able to think correctly about God and and His rightful place in our lives, who He is and who we are in relationship to Him. That is a gift that comes with God's grace. Scripture is pretty clear. We weren't doing that before the Spirit was active in our lives. So we need to be cautious about expecting godly thinking and behavior from those who do not have the ability to think and to act that way. Now our text this morning is from Matthew 18. And my suspicion is, is if you've been around you know, church life for a while, you'll have heard this text before. It's probably going to strike you as a little bit odd. Uh, to be read with this series, but I think there's just a tremendous truth that is, that is buried in this text that gives reason for why we are talking about improper expectations or unreasonable expectations. So let's stand together and let's read from Matthew 18 together this morning. Just uh, three verses from Matthew. Let's read together. Here we go. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. My brothers and sisters, the words of Jesus. Amen. Okay, go ahead and be seated. You've probably heard that text before. Some point in church life that you have been involved in, Jesus is teaching his followers about the importance of right relationships between one another. Remember, the kingdom of God is all about right relationships. How many times have we heard the words of Jesus from John 13? People will know you are my followers, my disciples, by the way that you love one another. Not by the churches you build, not by the programs that you offer, not by the songs that you sing, not by the stories that you tell, not by the parties that you throw. They will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And in John 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples, his followers would be one, that they would be unified so that the world would know that the Father had sent the Son for the salvation of the world. So sometimes, in our familiarity with the concept of having good relationships and loving one another, we forget 
just how significant this truth is. It is key. It is the defining character of the church. As the world on the outside looks at God's people living their lives together, the love that they show for one another, the way that they live their lives, the way that they are committed to being one and to being unified, despite the fact that they are very different people, the world looks at that and goes, wow, I haven't seen that anywhere in the world. It's because it's driven by the Spirit of God. So, so that's what Jesus, and, and what's interesting is that he teaches this in Matthew, which is very early in terms of his life. It's, it's way early in terms of several years before probably the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. It's almost as if Jesus is anticipating there's going to come a day when this is really important, so remember this. Okay, remember this, because there's going to come a day when, when different folks start coming into the church, when the church is comprised of all different people, of ethnicities, of different backgrounds. Remember how you need to deal with problems that come along to fracture unity. And so sin against one another breaks that unity. It breaks what is a bold witness to Jesus, and therefore if something happens that causes a fracture in the body, in the unity of one another, then we must do everything possible to mend the break and to restore that unity. And so Jesus starts with the person who's been sinned against. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about what the sin might be. But evidently, it's, it's significant enough that a person feels wounded. They feel They feel violated. They feel betrayed by a brother or sister in the body who has done this to them. And so what do they do? Well, they go out and tell everybody they can find. What a creep this person is. No, they go to the individual. They say, can we talk? I'm really hurt about this situation. And Jesus says, man, if, if that works, you've won the person over. That's, that's the way that the body of Christ is to work. But if it doesn't work, if your desire to mend that relationship is rebuffed, then, then take a couple of witnesses with you that, that know this scenario is true. And that's, of course, a, a throwback to a principle found in, in the law of Moses that the Israelites lived by. Take them, again, and in love, a desire to, 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 to bring this relationship together, to bring reconciliation and harmony have them speak with you. That doesn't work. Then bring the congregation together and have that person come before the congregation and in love and in a desire for love and and unity and witness, try to convince them of the error of their ways. And when that doesn't work, Jesus says, kick their sorry behind out of the church because this is just nonsense, right? Isn't that what he said? have nothing to do with them, right? Oh, I think that's my version, Rick. I'm sorry. Often, that is the way that this text is interpreted. This is the text that the Catholic Church for years stood on in terms of excommunication. This is the text by which the Jehovah's Witnesses shun members of their community. This is certainly a text regarding church discipline, but, but I'm, I'm fascinated with what Jesus says. What are we supposed to do if the person doesn't 
respond to all of these efforts to address the sin in a loving and redemptive manner, Jesus says, well, treat them as a tax collector and a pagan. Now, I want you to wrestle with this for just a minute with a neighbor. What is Jesus teaching his followers when he says to them, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector? What's Jesus saying? Flush that out a little bit. Conversation with your neighbor. Take a minute or two. Okay, what do you think? Any insights? Go ahead. That is such a novel concept that we would love unbelievers. I like it. Good, good, good. What else? Matthew was a tax collector? Oh, yeah. The one who is responsible for recording that gospel. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew loved by Jesus. Matthew called by Jesus to to be his follower. Treat them as you would pagans and tax collectors. Simply put, I think Jesus is saying this, that when a person does not respond to a spirit-led, loving confrontation about sin in their life, then it is quite possible that they are not indwelled by the Spirit of God. Boy, I know that that just raises all kinds of red flags. And I'm, I'm not stepping into the realm of, of judging folks because Jesus has told us to, to not judge. We have every reason in our lives to discern. You know, he, he, he tells us to be discerning, you know, and, and to, to try to understand where someone is coming from. But, but we need to go back and, and remember what we've learned in Romans chapter 8, that the Spirit of God changes the interior of an individual, changes the way they think, changes their heart, changes their outlook on life, changes the way they respond. It's not an instantaneous thing, but there is a growth in that direction, becoming more Christ-like in how they view life and live life. I really think that Jesus is saying that when a person does not respond to this process, you don't kick them out of the church. You don't shun them and have nothing to do with them. What a dumb idea. Jesus is saying, simply make an adjustment in your thinking about that person and the expectations that you have of them. If they're not indwelled by the Spirit of God, 
And we don't know that. It's just a possibility. If they're not indwelled by the Spirit of God, then they don't belong to God. And you cannot, we cannot expect godly behavior from those who do not belong to God. Okay, when he says to treat them like a pagan or a tax collector, he is simply saying, turn up the love. Turn up the intensity of the way that you, you, you reach out to that person and desire to, be, to become a redemptive part of their lives. Are you with me? Does this seem too far-fetched? Yes, seems too far-fetched. Doug, tell me why. Right. As you would. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And that's certainly how the church has interpreted this text many times throughout, throughout the centuries. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Go ahead, Allie. Say again. Peter. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, John. Isn't it also possible that they could possibly have an adverse effect on you? In terms of their influence on you? Or? Sure. Sure. They could, they could. Doug, say again. Okay, okay. Rick, you were going to comment? I think it's, and, and Doug, I'm with you, and I hear you. I think the challenge is, as he said, treat them as you would, then the challenge is to look at the life of the one who we claim to follow and ask, how did he treat 
tax collectors and sinners. Mm -hmm. They definitely were. Then if Jesus is not giving them a commandment to look at his own life, then it seems to me that we're left with the possibility of something that's very inconsistent in terms of his example to us as his followers. Okay, okay. RJ, were you going to say something? Yep. Well, certainly not at that point, but probably later on. Yes. Yes. Quite possible. Okay, okay. Now, let me just stop for a minute. We, th- this, this is definitely a wrestle that I think is worth thinking about, but I, the reason I use this is because I believe that what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching us that there is a way to have expectations of one another in the body, and those who perhaps are not indwelled by the Spirit of God are not going to think or live or act the same way. Does, does that seem reasonable? So that if we, if we then move on and we think about how Jesus treated tax collectors and sinners, again, coming back to our conversation, the expectations that we bring to, to non-Christians, the expectations that we bring to those who may not be indwelled by the Spirit of God, how did he do that? One of my favorite stories, if you remember, is Zacchaeus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Luke tells us that, that he, was, he was a chief tax collector. He wasn't just any tax collector. This guy, as the chief tax collector, was getting cuts from all the other tax collectors, and the tax collectors were, were viewed as traitors by, by their own people because they were Jews who were working for, for the, the, the Roman government. And, and Jesus saw Zacchaeus in that tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, come out of that tree. Come out of that tree because I immediately, is, is the way that Luke says it, Come out of that tree immediately because I need to go to your house. I need to stay at your house today. And the folks that were in the hearing of that said, wow, he's gone to the house of a sinner. Jesus is intentionally engaging Zacchaeus at that point and and reaching out to this one who was was broken. And I, I think... It seems to me, my brothers and sisters, that, that that's where we need to get to in terms of our, of our wrestling with, 
with the expectations that we may have of individuals, especially those who are, who are outside of the church or those who, as far as we know, have made no commitment to follow Christ. What are the expectations that we bring to them? I think we struggle sometimes with living in obedience to Christ and to the leading of His Spirit in our own lives. And, and we are the ones who are indwelled by the Spirit of God. We need to be very cautious that we don't place those expectations on those who are not led by the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? You know, to expect that, that sinful people are probably going to be sinful. You know, that, that they're probably going to say and do things that, that are, are contrary to perhaps some of, of our standards. We don't, want to, we don't want to bring to sinners feelings of pride in our own righteousness. We don't want to judge them for the sin that is in their own lives in terms of, of writing them off and putting them in a place that is beyond the redemption of God. They are, they are broken and they are lost. And so were we before God redeemed us with his undeserved grace. And we need to be cautious in our expectations of how folks will behave. Um, reading from one pastor this week was telling a story of some of the ways that, uh, that he thinks about engaging folks. And he just gives some, some possible scenarios. And I thought a couple of these were, were so good in terms of, of where they hit us in our, our everyday lives. He's talking about, uh, suppose you're on your way to work each morning, and you usually stop at Starbucks. You tend to get to the store at the same time each morning, and, and you often see a young girl who, who is there about the same time that you are. And, and on many mornings, you find yourself standing next to each other in line. In fact, you both order the same thing. She seems to be into the Gothic culture, black hair and black clothes and knee-high jackboots and black fingernails and black lipstick and piercings in the nose and leer, lips and ears and eyebrows and scattered tattoos. And she has a backpack and she has to take it off to get her money and sometimes it seems hard for her to hold the backpack or to get the money and pay for the coffee all at the same time. She doesn't make too much eye contact with others. You wonder whether you should strike up a conversation with her. Maybe to offer to hold her backpack while she pays. You're not sure what to do with the whole gothic bit because that's not you. And you don't know whether she'd give you a dark look and not say anything. Should you try to be friendly? Maybe find out what brings you both to the same Starbucks. Move toward greeting her in the morning. Learn about her life. Yes. Yes, by all means. Move into her world. Take a little step toward moving into her world and finding more about her. There's a man at work that everybody shakes their head at. He's been divorced a couple of times. Both of his ex-wives are suing him for past child support. He's a deadbeat dad, way behind on his support. Sends him a little every once in a while. He's living with someone else. A couple of weeks ago, he slapped her around, and he spent a couple nights in jail. She kicked him out. Now has a restraining order against him. Every day at lunch, goes out by himself to get a hamburger or burrito. He always comes back. Nobody talks very much to him because he's too quick to complain about everybody's taking advantage of him. Everybody's pushing the buttons. Everybody's squeezing him dry. Who wants to listen to that? You've often wondered about being nice and offering to go to lunch with him. Should you invite him along one day? Yes. Yes, by all means. Move into his world. Go to lunch with him. Why move into his world? Because with the eyes of Jesus, you can see a hurt that God can heal. You can see a bitterness of life 
You can see failing at relationships, blaming others instead of knowing how to change himself. You, you sense his fear of the future. No money, criminal record on the books, and his desperation over being all alone in the world. With the eyes of Jesus, you see a hurt that God can heal. My brothers and sisters, God calls us to be friends of sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And my prayer is that the Spirit will remind us often that there is no righteousness in us apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are no different from anyone else who walks on planet Earth. I pray that the Spirit will remind us often that it is not our place to judge, that is to convict or to, to assign to a category of, of hopeless or worthless based on sins. Some of us in this church family have known some pretty significant, pretty serious sins. And we, in fact, as the people of God, have been forgiven and redeemed of those sins. Praise be to his name. And my prayer is that the Spirit will remind us that expectations of godliness are appropriate with the people of God but with those who do not have the Spirit of God living in their lives, um, our response to their sinfulness or to their skewed thinking or to their way of looking at life, our response uh, needs to be one of, ah, the Spirit of God has, has not redeemed and worked in their lives yet. Not yet. And maybe, maybe if I'm their friend, maybe the presence of Jesus in my life will rub off on them as the presence of Jesus did in Zacchaeus' life that day. One of the things that's so amazing about that story is we have no record, according to Luke, that Jesus stood up and and lectured him about the evils in his life, that he was a a cheater and that he he was a lowlife as far as his people were concerned. And Zacchaeus, at the end of the story, stands up and repents and his life changes. And I think... That's our goal, is that the presence of Jesus in us, frail, broken, fragile vessels that we are, imperfect, all of our warts and downfalls, will radiate the presence of Jesus to those who have yet to know him. That's why it's important for us to be intentional friends of sinners, those who don't know Jesus. So praise team, why don't you come up, and I'm going to pray as you do. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to to wrestle together with this area of our lives that for some of us it is easy and for others not so much. Lord, I pray that, that we would seek to be friends of sinners like Jesus able to look at folks to see brokenness, to see hurt, to see devastation, to see those made in the image of God who are broken by sin in this world. May we see them through the eyes of our own redemption, Christ's righteousness given to us. See them through the eyes of having no condemnation, for we are now in Christ Jesus see them through the eyes of 
great potential for being followers of Jesus when your spirit goes to work in their lives. Use us, we pray, for your glory and for the befriending of those who don't know Jesus so that their lives might be changed and your name might be glorified. As a result, we pray in Jesus' name.